So we're looking at the book of 1 John, which is the letter written by John the Apostle, the disciple who Jesus loved. He was the only apostle who lived to an old age because the rest of them were martyred for their faith. John was sent off to the island of Patmos where he lived a long time, had uh, a lot of visions, wrote the book of Revelation, but he also wrote this little epistle, sort of a pastoral letter, to the churches in that, uh, and, and the, the people who, who he had pastored and those who were part of his legacy. And this is just his guidelines on the, on the Christian life. And so we're going to look at this today. We're at, in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world, because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's possessions, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar, if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. This is the Word of God for God's children this morning. Maybe you've heard the saying, if it was easy, everyone would do it. And I think that can be applied to a lot of areas of life, but one of the places I think it really applies is when we talk about the Christian life. In the book of 1 John, he describes the Christian life as simply walking in the light, as opposed to walking in darkness. But now he talks in this passage about some of the challenges that will come when we try to walk in the light. And I think it's good to look at the challenges and talk to the cha about the challenges up front. That way you won't be too disoriented or surprised when the challenges come. Uh, and, uh, you know, challenges in life are, are one of the universal problems of this world. And, and sometimes the more we're trying to do the right thing, the more we're we're seeking to walk in the life, the more those challenges come to us because we're setting a higher, a higher standard for ourselves. We're expecting more of ourselves. So three challenges. First of all, the, the temptation to what I call a disordered love. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world because when you love the things in the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And this is an interesting statement because, you know, it's kind of confusing because this is the same John, on the other hand, who said, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But here he says, do not love the world. And so, obviously, he's using 
the world in different senses in those, in those different verses. When he talks about God loving the world, he's talking about God's compassion and God's mercy and God's care for uh, the, populate, the people in the world. But here when he's talking about the world, he's using it in this, this sense, that, that it's the organization of the mind and the outlook of, of people that ignores God and does not recognize God and tries to live a life independent of him, a life based on this world and this life only. So when he's talking about loving the world, what he's talking about is our tendency to make the gifts God gives us an end in themselves and use the gifts and, and enjoy and indulge in the gifts that God gives us without remembering the giver of those gifts. I think uh, the book of Romans summarizes this from a different angle when, when Paul in Romans 125 says, people worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. In other words, people made the things that God made the goal of their life rather than seeing the gifts that God gives us as things that remind us of God's generosity to us. And so John breaks it down to three areas, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. I think that you kind of know where, where he's coming from on those. You know, it's, it's kind of obvious how our eyes can be captivated by, by the beautiful things we see in a way that helps, that, that sometimes distracts us or and in the midst of that we can forget the beauty, that all beauty comes from God. We can be overcome by our desires and forget that ultimately God himself is the one who will fulfill our desires. As Psalm 73 says, Whom have I in heaven but thee? The earth has nothing I desire apart from thee. We can get caught in the boastful pride of life, try to find pride in what we have and what we do, and forget that Jesus or that Paul said we should only boast in Christ and in the cross, and everything else is secondary to him. But what I want to talk mo about mostly is, is the challenge about the focus of the, the things we set our hearts on, or the ultimacy of love. In our, in our day and age, we've been heavily in influenced by the uh, Romantic movement, which says that the, the most important thing, the most significant thing, is love itself. Summed up by our friends, the Beatles, who said, love is all you need. Or as someone else said, you know, the heart wants what it wants. Because in our world, our own desires are, are a self-sufficient purpose for our life and a self-sufficient justification for everything that we have. And, and, you know, if you believe that, then, you know, the heart does want what it wants. And love is all you need. And, and that's, that's all there is to the story. But the problem is, any of you... If you've ever had responsibility for caring and, and watching a seven-year-old kid for 12 hours or more, you know that you can't always have everything that you want. And sometimes the only way uh, a kid is going to survive those 12 hours is if you occasionally say, no, I understand that you want that, but you can't have it. You know, I understand that you want donuts for dinner, but you've got to eat meat and vegetables because because sometimes the things we want just aren't good for us. Sometimes the things we want are actually destructive for us. Uh, or if you've ever 
counseled a distraught friend about a, a really unhealthy relationship they were getting out of. And you say to that distraught friend, what do you always say? Well, I actually don't think they were good for you. And what do they say? But I love him. And that's, that's like refutes everything. Everything else is irrelevant because, uh, you know, and, and we find in our lives we all get caught up and entangled in different things when we elevate our love and our desire to the ultimate place. And what the Bible says is love is the ultimate thing, but there's great danger for all of us of having a disordered love. And what this passage and a lot of other passages reflect is, is where you're at in life, where your heart's at, where your mind's at, where your soul's at, will be reflected by what you choose to love. And we are responsible for choosing to love certain things and choosing not to love other things. And, and the reason that's important is because loving the wrong things can crowd out things that we, we need to love. You know, if, if you allow, to go back to the child, if you allow the child to have ice cream for dinner, they're not going to have room for meat and vegetables, right? And uh, as John says here, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The problem with loving the world, the problem with a heart set on the world is it crowds out our capacity to experience and to enjoy love for God. And, uh, and that's the danger of a, a destructive relationship. You stay in that destructive relationship, you don't have room in your life for a relationship with God. And that, that's what he's inviting us to here. So, but, so when God says, do not love the world, it's not so much a rule that's, that's written there to, to keep you from enjoying life any more than saying to your kid, you can't have ice cream until after dinner is a rule you have to keep the kid from enjoying ice cream. It's, it's a, a guideline, it's a map to show us a way to a well-developed life, to show us a way to a healthy life, to show us a way to a life that's ultimately prosperous. It's not a, you know, God's rules are not a cage that restrain us from doing the things we want to do. They're a guardrail that keep us on the path so we get where we want to go. The greatest hope for all of us is the love of God for us. And the danger is if as we get caught up in the love of the world, it displaces the love of, love of God. And as he says here, the world and its desires are passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. You can choose what you love. You can choose who you love. You can choose how you love. You're responsible for that. And the path to freedom, the path to joy, the path to health, the path to wholeness is when you choose to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. So that's, that's the temptation to a disordered love. We've got to counteract that by choosing to love God. And then the second thing I want to show you is the test of love. John says in verse 19, they went out from us, speaking of people who fell away, they went out from us, but they never really belonged to us. Because what what John's talking about there is the fact that all of us, our faith gets tested. Part of living, trying to set a high standard for yourself in any area of life is that you'll be tested. And part of resolving to do anything in life is that inevitably 
your resolve will be tested. But, and it's the same thing with our faith. Our t faith is inevitably tested, and that's part of it. So we should expect those tests and even lean into those tests. Several years ago, I was on a boating trip in Alaska, and we were, were boating around Alaska. And for most of the, of the week we were there, it was pretty uh, placid. It was pretty tranquilo, and, and we were just having a good old time uh, in, in the boat, seeing the sights. But then on the last day, we got caught in a storm in this place called Icy Straits, which you, you really don't want to be caught in a storm there. And, and this, this boat that I thought was pretty big, it seemed pretty big, all of a sudden the waves were bigger. And, and we're all in the cabin, and, and, and I felt like a, a bug that a kid is trapped in a jar, and he's kind of shaking it like this, because you couldn't even sit in a chair. You had to kind of hold on and sit on the floor because the boat was pitching so badly. And then and, and the green water, the, the waves were coming up over the bow of the boat, and they were crashing. They were, they were coming through the windshield. And, and I looked over to my friend Paul, whose boat it was, whose trip it was, and, and who was responsible for all of our lives. And he's holding, on, he's holding on to this thing. And I'm thinking we're about to die. And he's like, well, we're just testing it for leaks. And you know, it's all about your mentality. But, but uh, you know, as we go through life, we're inevitably tested for leaks. And things happen in all of our lives that bring us to the breaking point. And that's actually part of life, because it's, it's in those tests that you find out what's really there. And, and a test isn't really a test unless it's tough, unless you're pushed right to the edge. I mean, it's like if, if we said to everybody here today, now, right after church, we're going to go out and test how fast everyone can run a mile. Now, from the looks of this crowd, some of you could run it pretty fast, and others of you might take a while. But, but if you were, everyone was actually trying to run a mile as fast as they possibly could, one of the things we'd have in common is it would be really painful for everybody if you're being tested or pushed to our limits. And you know what happens in the Christian life? Bible says in our Christian experience, if we're trying to walk in the light, if we're trying to do the, good, the right thing, tests will come. And God tests all of us, and there's times when we're pushed to our limits, when we're pushed right up to the breaking point. And uh, those tests are what reveal what's really there and who we really are, you know, and how we, how we act on the outside in response to those tests will reveal what is really in there. And John says, well, you know, there's some people who were tested and they went out from us, but they never really belonged to us. The promise to you and to me, if our faith is genuine, if our faith is real, and if we're seeking to follow God and to love God and we know the love of God, then we'll have what it takes to pass those tests when they come. So the tests of love come, the temptation. The temptation to a disordered love is part of all of our life. But now I want to talk about the truth that makes all of that possible. The truth of love is summed up in this one thing. He says, who is the liar? The one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. I want to talk about what it means to recognize that Jesus is the Christ. You know, that, that phrase, Jesus Christ, is, is, is it's an amazing thing in, in our world global culture, how that has become this, this swear word that everybody feels entitled to. Nobody else's name is used as a curse the way Jesus is. And I, I, you know, I, 
I was thinking about that that week. I don't have any insight as to why that is, but it just is. And, and I hope when you hear someone say that, it bothers you a little bit. But let me explain to you what this is. So listen to me, and maybe, maybe you'll learn something here. Now, a lot, most people think that, well, Jesus was his first name and Christ was his last name. But that's not what it was. So Jesus, let, let, let's, just to break it down, the word Jesus it comes from uh, Matthew 1.21. Remember the angel, go back to the Christmas story. The angel comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, you're going to have a son, but you don't get to name him. God names him, and his name is going to be Jesus. You'll call his name Jesus, it says in the English translations. And the word is Yeshua, which is actually Joshua. And so the word Joshua, which, which you know, the fifth book or the sixth book of the Bible, the successor to Moses, it, the Greek adaptation of that is the word Joshua, uh, Jesus. So essentially the angel comes to Joseph and says, okay, you're going to have a son, call him Josh. You know, no big deal, common, a common enough uh, uh, Hebrew name at the time. And so that was, that was Jesus' first name. And so Jesus of Nazareth is very a very uh, common kind of name. It's kind of like saying Ben from Jersey City. You know, it's just like... <laughs> Can anything good come out of there? I'm not sure. Um, but but, uh, <laughs> but so, so there was nothing unique about the name Jesus. It's just become unique since, uh, since we know who, who Jesus was. But, uh, but the word Christ is the one that's, that's unique there. Now, the word Christ, the title, is not, it's not, a, not his last name. It's not that it was... Uh, Joseph Christ married Mary, and they became the Christ family and had a son named Jesus Christ. That's not, that's not how it worked. Um, what happened, the word Christ is the Greek adaptation or translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, and it means the anointed one. And so for the believing Jews of the first century, the Christ was a figure who they were waiting for. And if you remember, if you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, you know, one of the things that always is happening to Jesus is different people, different, different delegations are coming to him and saying, we're, we've heard about your teaching, we've heard about your miracles, we've heard about this movement you're starting. Are you the Christ? And he always has some smart answer for them, you know. He never answers them directly, or sometimes when people come to him and they're really honest with him, then he says, Yes, I am the Christ, but don't you dare tell anybody. This is a secret just between us for now. And what's going on there? Why was, why was he keeping his identity as the Christ a secret? Well, to understand that, you've got to remember the circumstance of the Jews in the first century in Israel. Remember, they were not a free people. They were subjects of the Roman Empire. Remember, remember that? And so that whole nation was chafing under the control of Rome. And as they were struggling with uh, the humiliation and the economic and social and political oppression of being, being, under, being forced under the power of the Roman Empire, they were desperately looking for a deliverer. And so they read the Old Testament, and they read the story of David, and they read the Psalms, and they read the prophets. And the prophets and, and the Psalms and the story of David was all about the promise that sometime soon a a son of David would come and he would restore Israel to her former glory and he would liberate them from those who were oppressing them and they, they would be restored to their military and their economic and their social and their cultural power 
that they hadn't had for for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so people were so desperate, they were so unhappy with their circumstance that they were desperately looking for the Messiah, for the Christ. And a lot of people came as pretenders and, and presented themselves in this way. And, and all of them were exposed as, as phonies and all of them were killed. And so then Jesus comes along and people are saying, this guy has credibility. He turns water into wine. He feeds the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. He does all of these amazing things. He's, his teaching is, is with authority. He seems to be saying something that we've never heard before. This might be the Christ. And so his disciples assumed that, that they were on the verge of this glorious breakthrough. A lot of his followers were expecting that. And then you know the story. What happens to Jesus? He goes into Jerusalem. Everyone's getting excited. This is going to be his moment. They have Palm Sunday. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus is arrested. He's condemned. And he's hung on the cross. You know the story, right? You've heard that story before. And when that happened, everyone said, well, I guess we were wrong. Obviously we were wrong because a crucified Messiah is not a Messiah. Any, any so-called aspiring Messiah who gets crucified is proved by virtue of the fact that he suffered and died that he's actually not the Messiah because the Messiah is supposed to be this great victor. It's supposed to win this great victory and it's supposed to restore Israel to, uh, to her former prominence and glory or, and even surpass that as it's described in, in uh, Ezekiel and, and Isaiah and the other and the other prophets. So they're waiting for that. They're looking for that. When Jesus dies, when he's executed in a state execution by the Romans, they know, okay, he was just another pretender. He was just another fake. He was just another phony. He was a victim to the very regime that he was supposed to destroy. <laughs> what are we going to do now? <laughs> All right. So, so, so uh, that would have been the end of the story of Jesus the Christ. He would have been another footnote along with, with literally dozens of other phony Christs who rose up, who got a little following, and who were ultimately executed by the Romans as soon as they got dangerous. But then something happened. Three days later, he rose from the dead, the first Easter. You remember that story? And... What it turns out, what the disciples didn't understand is that he is indeed the Messiah. And it's not that he failed, it's not that he fell short of their expectations of the Messiah, but that he was actually a much greater Savior than they could ever imagine. He was more than anything they could ask or imagine. Because he didn't just come to free the Israelites of the first century from Roman oppression. He came to free all of humanity from pain and death and sorrow and misery in all its forms. He came not just to defeat the Romans of the first century, but to defeat the grave and sin and death and sorrow. That's why the anthem, the Easter song is, Oh, grave, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He came to give them a hope that they didn't even know they could hope for, hope over death itself. And so when you affirm that Jesus is the Christ, you're saying, he's your anointed one. 
He's the one who's come to restore your life. He's the one who's come to redeem your life. And that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to give you everything you want, just like he didn't give the people of Israel everything they wanted. That doesn't mean he's going to solve all of your immediate problems, just like he didn't solve all the immediate problems of the people of Israel. But that means he's going to solve the ultimate problems for you and for everyone who believes in him, everyone who trusts in him. The essence of the gospel is to say, Jesus is my Christ. He's my anointed one. He's my redeemer. He's my savior. And he's the one who ultimately I am going to rest in and I am going to trust in. And this is important for all of us. And this this is a process for all of us. And this is a challenge for us because, you know, as I've discovered, as I've gone through life, that we all carry with us these various itches and insecurities and agonies and desires and longings that we're just all, you know, we're all a bundle of these things and we're all trying to resolve these things by various methods, by maybe achieving more in our career, by finding the right relationship, moving to another city, buying a new thing or whatever it is to, to make us somehow feel better about ourselves. You know, maybe we're frustrated about our jobs or our finances, or our family or our relational status. But one, one thing I've found that we all have in common is we all got something. It's the universal human condition. We're all, we've all got something that is almost unbearable that we're living with. Some hunger, some wound, some itch that that we're struggling with. I, I guess you could boil them down into three categories. You know, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, boastful pride of life. You know, I've, I've recognized this about myself and I've recognized it about almost anybody I've a, a, ever actually had an honest conversation with. Uh, you know, just recently I was complaining to a friend about some things. He said, well, what, why don't you get to the place where you can actually be content in Christ? You kind of preach that to other people, he was saying. I was like, well, yeah, it's easier to preach than it is to do. <laughs> so bear with me. But, you know, one of the things I've learned over the course of life, over, I've, you know, I've spent my life studying the Bible and talking to people about the challenges they face. And, and in, in my ministry, I've spent an inordinate amount of time talking to people who actually have pretty much everything this world has to offer. And yet they were still absolutely miserable. They had everything that, that the world has to give, and yet they were still a mess. They had everything that money could buy, and yet there was a, a black hole where their heart was supposed to be. And that just, that, that was therapeutic for me because it made me realize in a life sometimes where there's a lot of things I can think of that I want that I don't have that really the things I don't have aren't really the issue. The issue for everybody is understanding what it means to say that Jesus is my anointed one. Jesus is my redeemer. Jesus is the one who's making everything new in my life and in my heart. And I need to trust in him, not trust in getting a raise at work, not trust in getting a new apartment or getting a new roommate or getting new friends or getting into a new relationship. I need to learn to rest in him and to trust in him. And so, you know, the problem is we anoint different things in our life. We try to anoint a new, a new job, a new 
a, a financial windfall, moving to a new city or, or finding new people to hang around with. And when we do that, we're denying, what we're doing when we do that is we're denying that Jesus really is the one who is anointed to touch our deepest need. Jesus' death is the greatest gift that was ever given, and that's the proof of his love for you and for me. And Jesus' resurrection is the ultimate hope for all of us in the midst of this broken world we live in, in the midst of our broken lives, in the midst of the problems of the, the hunger and, and the abuse and the alienation that's all around us. The hope is that because Jesus rose from the dead, one day he's going to invite you and me into a new world where there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Jesus is the Christ. He's not the anointed one you want, but he is the anointed one that you need. If you will just look to him, he's the one your heart is longing for. He's the one your desire needs to be focused on. He is the one who has the love that you've been waiting for all your life. If you'll just bring your burdens to him, make him your love, make him your longing, make him your hope. The promise is he will not disappoint. He disappointed his disciples for a time because he got crucified. And they said, well, I thought he was the Messiah. Now he's crucified. I guess he's not the Messiah. <coughs> but that was just to show them that he's even greater and more powerful than they could even imagine. He, and I know a lot of us right here were in circumstances where we're disappointed at this time. But that means that God is working in your life and in your heart something that's greater and better and more glorious than anything you can imagine if you'll just trust in him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the victory of Jesus. I pray for each one here in whatever fight they find themselves in in this moment that you would show us how to rest in him. Forgive us for anointing other things in our life, O oh Lord, and move us to rest only in the anointed one, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.